You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Bloomberg's report of a Chinese seeding attack on the IT hardware supply chain comes in for skepticism, but Bloomberg stands by and adds to its reporting. Everyone is seeing Russia's GRU everywhere, and Russia feels aggrieved by the accusations. The UK prepares a retaliatory cyber capability. The US looks to grid security. Silence describes Panda Banker. And Google had a good day in UK courts Monday, but a bad day elsewhere. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 9, 2018. Bloomberg's report of Chinese hardware seeding attacks on the IT supply chain received more skeptical criticism over the long holiday weekend. Both Apple and Amazon quickly denied the report as soon as it was published, and their denials were specific and unambiguous. On Friday, the UK's National Cybersecurity Center said it had no reason to doubt Apple's and Amazon's assessments. On Saturday, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security agreed. They said, quote, Like our partners in the UK, at this time we have no reason to doubt the statements from the companies named in the story. End quote. Bloomberg's story said that the incident was under government investigation, but DHS and, for that matter, GCHQ each deny investigating the issue. There are, of course, other agencies who might investigate. The hardware security expert cited by name in the Bloomberg story, Joe Fitzpatrick, told the Risky Business podcast that the analysis he provided was more along the lines of this is what could happen as opposed to this is what did happen. Fitzpatrick also said that he was uncomfortable with the story as published and that he told Bloomberg the account of the chips being used as a backdoor didn't make much sense to him. And an op-ed in CSO disputes the seeding attack story on grounds of a priori probability. Why, asks columnist Robert Grimes, would Chinese intelligence compromise the hardware supply chain when it was already enjoying general success in stealing intellectual property by conventional hacking? And why would they do so in a way bound to damage their own manufacturer's solid position in the market? We can think of several answers, poorly coordinated operations, the competing agency equities and attendant disagreement over tactics that appear in any government, simply folly or miscalculation, or perhaps the basic animal tendency we all share of enjoying doing things we're capable of doing. But Grimes's point is worth considering. It does seem like an oddly conceived operation. For its part, Bloomberg is standing by its story. Late this morning, they published a follow-on, including on-the-record statements by experts at Sepio Systems, a Maryland-based security firm, to the effect that Sepio had indeed found the Chinese spy chips and systems belonging to one of Sepio's clients, a telecommunications company. 
Non-disclosure agreements preclude Sepio from saying who that client was, but they do say they found the hardware implant in a supermicro component. The spy chip was found in the server's Ethernet connector, they say. No one would seriously dispute that the kind of supply chain attack described by Bloomberg would be a nightmare, as the Daily Beast puts it, but whether the nightmare came true remains an open question. As Bruce Schneier pointed out in a Marketplace interview, the IT supply chain is probably irreversibly internationalized and couldn't be made otherwise without costs no one would reasonably be willing to pay. Germany has joined other nations in attributing widespread cyber attacks to Russia's GRU, that's APT28, also known as Fancy Bear. Latvia accused the same Russian agency of hacking its defense and other government networks, and Brazil is voicing concerns about Russian election influence operations. Russia continues to deny having done anything at all, and Moscow is calling in the Netherlands' ambassador to demand an explanation of why his government is saying bad things about the GRU. The GRU officers expelled from the Netherlands last week weren't, says Moscow, GRU officers at all, even if there were any such thing as the GRU. They were just tourists. We imagine them as being tulip and windmill aficionados. The UK continues to be justifiably upset about the Novichok attacks and Russia's accompanying information campaign about them. But the UK is even more concerned, and has been for some time, about attacks on its critical infrastructure, especially power distribution systems. The Times of London and Quartz, among other news services, report that the UK is preparing a retaliatory capability against Russian cyber attacks. According to the Times, that capability is being tested in exercises. According to Quartz, the prospective target of the retaliation is the Russian power grid. The U.S. Department of Energy is also warning of the possibility of attacks on the grid, with Secretary Perry suggesting last week that the threats range across the usual spectrum, from a kid in a parent's basement to a nation-state espionage service. The department is investing in various R&D projects designed to increase grid resilience. They mention protecting alternative energy sources like wind turbines, and there's an evident interest in protecting turbines more generally considered. Last week's multinational accusations against Russia's GRU included, among many other particulars, an account of GRU hacking of Pittsburgh-based Westinghouse. Where reports discussed the Westinghouse intrusion, they made prominent mention of the company's work on nuclear reactors. The juxtaposition of cyber attack and nuclear is always scary enough, but it's worth placing this in the context of cyber threats to critical infrastructure and industrial processes more broadly considered. Phil Nire, VP of Industrial Cybersecurity at CyberX, put it this way to us in an email, quote, Almost buried in the indictment is a description of how the GRU hacked Pittsburgh-based Westinghouse, whose power plant designs are used in about half of the world's nuclear power plants. One of the motivations for this attack would be to steal sensitive design information about industrial control systems so that Russian threat actors could further compromise critical infrastructure in the West. This is pretty sobering, especially when you realize that the GRU is also responsible for unleashing NotPetya on the world, a destructive worm which has been called the most devastating cyber attack in history. End quote. Note the point about the threat of preparatory reconnaissance. We tend to think of hacks against industrial firms as having the theft of intellectual property as their goal. That's certainly been true enough, particularly with respect to Chinese industrial espionage. But there are other reasons to go after a company's files, 
and battle space preparation is one of them. Security firm Silance today released their study of PandaBanker, the malware that's targeted bank accounts, credit cards, and web wallets, mostly in the United States, Canada, and Japan. It infects systems through API hooking, injecting its scripts into a target web page in the victim's browser. PandaBanker's malware is notable for what Silance calls heavy code obfuscation and multi-encryption layering. Upon installation, it checks for both sandboxing and manual analysis, looking for packet capture programs, debuggers, disassemblers, and similar analytical tools. If it detects any of these, it exits and deletes itself from the victim's system. PandaBanker was first observed working against Japanese banks in March of this year. In August, Silence observed it in action against other Japanese companies. There's no further attribution beyond the description of the threat actor. It is regarded as a variant of the familiar Zeus Trojan, which suggests a criminal gang. As the week opened, Google was the subject of some good news and some bad news. First, the good news. Good for Google. Yesterday in the UK, the High Court threw out a suit that could have cost Google £3.3 billion. The suit concerned illegitimate data collection from Apple's Safari browser, the Safari Workaround, between August 2011 and February 2012. Google has settled various U.S. claims over the same incident for a total of $39.5 million. And the bad news. Google announced yesterday that it would wind down its social network. Google Plus had been commercially disappointing. It was also leaky. The Wall Street Journal reports that Google Plus revealed user data to app developers without users' knowledge. The journal says Google knew about the API issue in March, but decided on legal advice that it wasn't, strictly speaking, obligated to disclose it. Mountain View feared regulatory scrutiny and reputational damage. Google has also said it wasn't able to find out enough about what had been or could have been affected by the API mishap to notify anyone, so individual notifications would have been effectively impossible. It's as if Sophocles has come to Silicon Valley, just as exposing the infant Oedipus on a mountainside brought about the very disaster it was intended to avert, so too will legal maneuvering through regulatory loopholes probably bring about the closure of those loopholes, tighter regulation, and more public odium. Well, maybe that's overstating things. We're not quite sure how far to push the analogy. But it does seem clear that Google will face increased scrutiny, and that sentiment for national as opposed to state-level regulation of breach disclosure and data privacy matters will surge, at least for now. The demise of Google Plus may also have some implications for the antitrust scrutiny the social media sector is currently facing. Do network effects operate so strongly in the sector as to render single large incumbents effectively immune to challenge by competitors? If Google can't compete in that space, who can? everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. 
Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, we wanted to talk today about some of the methods that hackers are using to perform reconnaissance to go through that system and, and see what's going on. What can you share with us? Well, what I can share with you is that the OSINT, the Open Source Intelligence Network, the Internet, all of the sources available today are not making it any easier for us as defenders, and it's only making it easy for the bad guys. Uh, <laughs> Let's just take a few years ago when adversaries could profile companies. They could take a domain name. They could plug it into a system. They could get uh, not only uh, who registered the domain name, uh, but all the changes of people that have uh, touched that domain information. Uh, they can list all of the hosts within that domain name. So you can th see things like do they call their email system email or do they call it mail or call it OWA or perhaps they call it outlook.domain.com. And that sort of discovery enables adversaries to then connect and do a port scan across all of those systems. So let's take, for instance, uh, vpn.domain.com. Mm -hmm. They're going to run a port scan versus that host. They're going to see that there's a commonly known VPN port that's there. They're going to connect to it. And, and in some cases, they, you can actually derive what VPN software and what version, and then, of course, run that against things like the National Vulnerability Database and see if that is vulnerable. But it doesn't stop there. That's the that's old school. That's that's the the manual way. Today there's websites like Shodan and Shodan its main purpose is to scan literally every IP address out in the internet today and to connect up to every one of those hosts and do a port scan and then find the commonly understood protocols and also um, do some uh, analysis or some analytics around that to see what's vulnerable. So if you wanted to see, for instance, for all of the publicly exposed webcams of this certain overseas vendor between version this and that running on this port, you could then go to Shodan and get a complete report about that. So um, it's getting even easier to profile organizations uh, from a technical level. 
Now, what about this notion? I've heard organizations are are using misdirection. So if someone comes in and tries to scan them, uh, they'll see stuff that doesn't tell them the real story. So deception-based computing, things like honeypots or displaying false information is certainly a means to uh, throw off and to uh, introduce a smokescreen to your adversaries. But let's not forget that many companies have to expose legitimate ports and services to their customers or to their partners. So while that may throw off the scent or uh, mislead or misdirect potential adversaries, there's still quite a few ports and services that need to be uh, exposed uh, for an organization in order to do uh, their normal course of business. Okay, so that's the technical side of things, but what about the human side? What, What kind of stuff are they doing to get information on the people? Like all of us, when we're upset or we want to contact the leadership of a company, we can go there, we can look at the About Us, we can look at the contact page, perhaps we can even look at their board of directors and their C-suite, their pictures. That gets us the name of the company officers. And even if a company is public and they don't publish that information, you can still get it through um, SEC filings like their 10K. So that gets you the listing of some of the top employees in the in the company. Then it's just a matter of inserting those names into things like Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can derive a lot of, of insight and information. Let's say that uh, you're profiling the CFO of an organization, and, the, and this woman, let's say that she, um, you search for her in Facebook, and there's not a whole lot in Facebook, but she did post that she and her son ran a 5K in the city that they live in. Well, now you know that this CFO has a son and you know that she's an avid runner. Then let's go to LinkedIn and let's search on her. And let's say you actually make a fake profile, which many of our adversaries do. Let's say it's someone from her um, alma mater, from her college. You connect up with her and then you see her personal email address. Now you have who she is, basically where she lives. She has a son. She's a runner. She ran a race. You have her personal email address. That's enough to craft a, a specifically targeted fish to her on her personal uh, email address. Perhaps it's an attachment. Perhaps it, you wanted to click on a link and now you've got her. So um, even in a, in a worst case scenario, let's say that uh, that CFO reads that email and clicks the link, but she does it from her work computer. Now you've even been able to compromise someone on the inside. Uh, and if they click that phishing link from her personal email address, now you've also circumvented all of the email security and email controls and you're within her browser. So adversaries, this is straight out of the book of what most of our adversaries are doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. All right, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. 
That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.